It was the mid-1970s that Oliver Sacks introduced the world to one of his patients, Jimmy G. When Jimmy would come into Oliver's office, Oliver being a neurologist who was interested in what was happening in Jimmy's brain, and he would ask Jimmy, he'd say, Jimmy, tell me about World War II. And Jimmy would have story after story. I was on the boat, and I was in the plane. And they would say, Jimmy, how old are you? And Jimmy would say, I'm, I'm in the mid-twenties. The problem was that Jimmy was 49 years old and had all the physical characteristics to prove it, the protruding belly, the receding hairline, those young wrinkles. And so Oliver would eventually say, Jimmy, why don't you take a look in the mirror? And Jimmy would walk up to the mirror and he would be aghast by what he saw. And Jimmy would ask, is this some kind of practical joke? And Oliver would say, no, you have course laws syndrome, which means you don't remember anything beyond a couple of minutes beyond your 20th birthday. And Jimmy would say, could I have a few minutes? And he would go off into the restroom to regain himself. He'd walk back in the room and he'd see Oliver and he'd say, hi, my name's Jimmy, and reintroduce himself as if the conversation had never happened. And in his writings, Oliver talked about how sad it is that there's a person who does not have a history because without a history, he has no present sense of identity, and he has no future sense of who he might or could be. And there is this recognition and realization that without memory, we lose our identity. Our text this morning, Exodus chapter 11 uh, through chapter 13, is about what it means or what it might mean if a people were to lose their memory to forget what God has done. And so what we find in our text is that God is, is memorializing an event. The, the, the Passover, of course, this, this event where God passes over. And what God wants to ensure is that future generations, if they would ever ask the question, who are we? What is our identity? That they would be able to point very quickly back to the night that God passed over the Israelites and to say, that's who we are. We are people who have been saved and redeemed because of what God did on that night. And what we find, I think, in our text is why memory is so important to God. Because it is in our memories that we form our identity. And it's ironic that in our text it actually spends very little time telling us about what happened. But we do recognize that God tells Moses and Aaron about what is about to happen. And they are to instruct people that they should go and select a lamb. A lamb should be a male, a year old, without any blemish. They should slaughter that lamb, and they should take its blood and put it on their doorposts and on the lentils of their house. And as they eat the meal in which the lamb has been roasted, they are to do so, our text says, with their loins girded, sandals on their feet, and a staff in hand. And if that doesn't mean much to you, it's more like saying they should do it with their exercise clothes on, running shoes tied up and car keys in their hands, ready to go. And it is that very night under the cover of darkness, God in one form or another will go throughout the entire land of Egypt. And those houses that he sees with the blood on the doorposts, he will pass over those houses. 
But those houses, the houses of the Egyptians, where there is no blood, God will strike down the firstborn of that house. See, we find that death would come to every house that night. It would either be the death of the lamb or the death of the firstborn, but every house, none would escape this coming night of God. And of course, when the Egyptians awake with their firstborns now dead, we are told they cry out with a loud cry. And there is a recognition that God has now brought a complete reversal. Because when we first found the Israelites, they were crying out loudly for God's redemption and God's rescue. And now we find that the Egyptians are the ones crying out. And God had warned the people, those who are willing to pay attention to what was happening, when the Nile turned to blood, they should recognize our land will be covered in blood. When of the frogs, they gathered up the bodies, and the bodies were there, and a stench went across the land from the bodies. It is a reminder that death is coming. And yet Pharaoh and the people would not heed the warnings of God. And so that very night, God did what he said he would do. God had told um, Moses, Israel is my firstborn son. And what had Egypt done to God's firstborn? What had God, Egypt done to God's children? They had taken the male boys and they'd thrown them in the Nile to kill them. And so God now finds divine retribution and judgment upon those who mistreated his firstborn. He comes to find their redemption, their salvation, and their sanctification. And after this final plague, the people will leave Egypt. Pharaoh summons them and he says, go and worship the Lord as you said. But as they go, they go as a completely new people. If you were to picture this, I think you might naturally think of, uh, you've probably seen enough movies where somebody's been rescued from some sort of uh, random or hostage or uh, bondage situation. I, I think of a stretcher and torn, dirty clothes and scratch marks and bloody marks all over their body, emancipated. And yet that's not how Israel leaves Egypt after these 400 plus years. As they go out, the text says that the Israelites uh, had done as Moses told them. And they had asked the Egyptians for jewelry of silver and gold and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that when they uh, let them, so that they left them and they did what they asked. So 400 years, 430 years in slavery. And they come out not with torn clothes and scratches all over their bodies and emancipated bodies, but they come out of that land with gold necklaces, dangling gold earrings, silver across their body, pressed purple robes, a, a line of cattle as far as the eyes can see. This does not look like captive people freed from their captives. It looks more like a business convention where the who's who gather. That's what it looks like when God brings people out of a situation in which they've been oppressed. And so the Israelites, they leave with dignity. Exodus 11.3 says, The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, Moses himself was a man of great importance in the land of Egypt, and in the sight of Pharaoh's officials, and in the sight of the people. And of course, when Pharaoh tells the people to leave, he says, Take your flocks and your herds. As you said, and be gone, and bring a blessing on me too. Now that, that request may seem strange because we don't recognize the dignity of that statement perhaps because it's not a custom we have. We are reminded in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 7 that the lesser is blessed by the greater. 
And so the very fact that Pharaoh is asking for a blessing, he is saying of the Israelites, you are greater than me. And if I am to be blessed, it will be through your hand and through your God who will offer me that blessing. I think most of us would think it's a successful mission if the people just get out of Egypt. But the nature by which they leave Egypt, they leave as a new people and as a new nation. And they leave blessed and with their dignity. And God wants the people to remember that event because if they forget that event, God knows they will forget who they are. They will lose their identity. And so out of this single event, it's interesting, Exodus 11, 12, and 13 is not so much about what God did, but about the events that God puts into place to remember it. And so there are three events that God says, these will become things for the future that you will remember what I did. The first, of course, is the Passover meal. The second is the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the third is the consecration of the firstborn. And each of these holy events are to remind the people year after year of this event. That, that their identity came about not because of anything they were able to do or accomplish, but because of God's mighty work and God's deliverance. And so God initiates these events the year after year they are to be remembered. Time after time they're reenacted so that the people will not forget what God has done on this event. And so each of the three have these elements, first of all, where they are forward-looking. Each three talks about how God is doing what he has promised. And each three events also talk about when you get to the land that God is going to bring you into. There is a recognition that this is the beginning of God fulfilling his promises. When God strikes down the firstborn and he brings his people out, they can now move forward with confidence that everything that God has promised will come about and will be brought to its fulfillment. And so they get ready for this new land. God wants to make sure that when they enter into the new land, they don't enter forgetting their past. Because God knows what that land is like. It is a good and a spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they're leaving with their gold necklaces and their gold earrings and their silver across their body and their purple robes and a line of herds as long as you can see. And they're going into a good land and God is concerned. When you get there, you might forget your story. You might forget who you are. You might forget where the gold came from and where the silver came from and where the herds came from from and so god gave them a word of warning in 8 14 of deuteronomy he says do not exalt yourself forgetting the lord your god who brought you out of the land of egypt out of the house of slavery isn't it possible that sometimes when god blesses us it can go to our heads and that we might exalt ourselves last weekend they had the first ever world cup of fortnite which is a video game in case you don't know and the winner, a 16-year-old, won $3 million. And my first reaction is, I'm glad I'm not that kid's parent. Because I don't know how I would raise a kid to not forget their past when they have $3 million in their pocket at 16 years old. Because it's so easy to forget your history when you have something like that happen. And that's God's concern. I mean, Israel has essentially just won the lottery. They're coming out as millionaires, and they're going into a great land. They're moving into a mansion. And how are they going to remember how they got that mansion, how they got that wealth, and how they got that life? And so God says, this needs to be remembered. How you got to where you get. 
And so God does not want them to forget their deliverance. And so the first thing we're going to look at is how God uses these three events to keep the memory sharp and active and alive in each generation. The first thing is that God says these things that happened at the Passover, when, when God passed over from killing your firstborn, you need to make sure you're telling your children about this. So each of the three events have a text wherein the children are brought into the focus. Because if we are to tell our stories, we need to make sure that our children understand the stories of how we got where we are. When they look at the mansion, when they see the gold, when they see the silver, when they see the nice clothes, they're going to wonder, how did we get this? And it is the family's responsibility to tell them about what God did to ensure that we have what we have. And related to that, God wants to ensure that he keeps this event in their memory by having them re-participate in a physical practice in something that memorializes that first event. And so each of these three events as they are described, they have a sign. Something that is ser to serve as a reminder of what God has done. And, and in fact, it's more than just a sign. It's they are to participate in it as if that happened in your day and in your time and it happened to you. So, for example, in uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 42, uh, the text says, That same night is a vigil to be kept for the Lord by all the Israelites throughout their generations. In other words, the people stayed up and they watched what God was going to do for deliverance. And now they're told, as you re-participate in this, you're not remembering that they watched. What are you doing yourself? You are watching. Every generation is going to watch and to see what God will do in our own day, in our own age and amongst our own generation. And so God institutes these three things, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Firstborn, to remind them, to keep it in front of them continually about the story of how it was that they came out of Egypt. And what is the content of the story that they are to tell? The, each of the stories has this theme that repeats that God did it. This is a story of a God who brings about deliverance for his people. So as you look at each one has an element as they retell what happened. In each case, God is the subject of the action. He struck down the Egyptians. He brought you out from there by strength with a strong hand. By the strength of the Lord, he brought us out of Egypt. By that strength of his hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And so subsequent generations are going to say, how did it happen? What's the answer supposed to be? God did it. It's very interesting because sometimes it's so easy for us to tell the story of our deliverance about our role. And Egypt did play, Israel did play a role, didn't they? They put the blood on the doorpost. But nowhere in this text does it say, tell them about the faith of your forefathers and how it was because they were faithful. That's how they were brought out. There's no story that remembers the human participation, the human role. The story is all about what God did. He did this and he did this and he did this. God delivered his people and tell the generations to come. See, sometimes when we talk about our faith, we can get stuck on the my statements. We talk about my faith and my response and my commitment and what I'm doing for God. And there is, in fact, a time and a place for that. But when we are remembering our story and when we are passing it on to our children, the story we tell is the story of what God has done, how God has rescued and how God has delivered. God wants to ensure that Israel never forgets. He did it. 
And as a result, each text recognizes that God, therefore, should get the credit. Each, each ceremony or each festival is to the Lord. It is for the sake of the Lord. It is in order to honor and to give glory to the Lord. Sometimes it's easy. When things go well and when we're in a time of plenty, to forget where it came from. I don't know if any of you are into basketball, but recently the uh, number one draft pick, Zion Williamson, uh, was picked. And everybody knew he was going to be the first round draft pick. And so people were kind of surprised that he was emotional because he knew he was going to be the first round draft pick. And right afterwards, they did an interview with him and they asked him about it. And he said, I didn't think I'd be in this position. My mom sacrificed a lot for me. I wouldn't be here without my mom. She did everything for me. I just want to thank her. She put her dreams aside for mine. Now, are there any other stories Zion Williams could have told at that very moment? He could have said, every one of those early mornings that I woke up for practice has paid off. And every one of those late days that I stayed later than everyone else in the basketball court has paid off. And every one of those long road trips that I committed to has paid off. And every one of that blood and sweat and tears that I have played out, all of that has finally paid off. And I'm now getting my just rewards for it. But Zion Williams, when he's asked about being the number one draft pick, he tells a story about who? About his mom. And what she sacrificed. Is that to say Zion Williamson didn't sacrifice anything? Of course he did. But he recognized who needs to get the credit. Somebody had invested in him before any of these skills or abilities developed. See, in a similar way, what Israel needs to learn to do is to make sure they tell the proper story about the lamb. Because they could have told the story. Well, we got up and we went out and we found the best lamb and we took it and we slit its throat and we took the blood and we put it on there and we got saved because of it. And Exodus 11, 12, and 13 would say that's the wrong story. That's not the story God wants you telling when you're remembering the night that God brought you out of Egypt. And so here we are as New Testament Christians talking about something that happened an awfully long time ago, very strange practices and customs, and we wonder, does it, has any, does it have any significance for us? Interestingly, when we get to the New Testament, we find Jesus and his disciples having a Passover meal together. And the thing that's very interesting in the Gospels is they have the Passover meal, is the one thing that is not mentioned in any of the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke is the lamb. And I'm thinking, if you're going to do a Passover meal, what's the most important thing? It is the lamb. Don't forget the lamb because it is because of the lamb's blood that God passed over. And New Testament readers are to be asking, where is the lamb? Because the lamb is to be the central focus. And it reminds me of an Old Testament story in Genesis 22 where Isaac and Abraham are walking up a mountain, and Isaac asks his dad the question, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isn't that a good question? When it comes time to sacrifice, you want to know where the lamb is, especially after you've read the story of Abraham and Isaac, because you know if you're not paying attention to where the lamb is, you might end up being the lamb. And he asks his father, where is the lamb? Because God had said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. And why would God ask that? And why would Abraham not push back on that? Why doesn't Abraham say, God, this is crazy talk. I know you're not into child sacrifice. 
See, Abraham knows what will be said clearly in Exodus in our text, which is recognition that every firstborn is mine. Abraham knows his story. He knows how the firstborn came about. And so if God asks for the firstborn, Abraham's going to say, okay, he's your firstborn anyways. So we have the question, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? You remember what Abraham said to Isaac? God himself will provide the lamb. And so the scene is there on the top of the mountain, Abraham with an outstretched hand, knife in hand, Isaac tied to the altar. And then our text says, And Abraham looked up and he saw a ram caught in the thicket by its thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Passover is not the first time that a lamb was offered in the place of another. That, that somebody could say, I'm alive today because the lamb died on my behalf. And we as Christians, as we get close to the Passover meal, where Jesus is there with the disciples, we need to be on point and say, where's the lamb? Because if there is no lamb, it might be who? It might be you, and it might be me. And then, probably if you've never read this story, something absolutely shocking and unexpected happens. God gives his firstborn, his beloved son, as the lamb. Remember, Abraham's son got saved by the lamb. Remember, the sons in, Egypt, in Israel, they got saved because of the Lamb. And when God has a chance to save his son through another Lamb, he doesn't. God offers his beloved son as the Lamb. And so Paul calls this Jesus our Passover Lamb, Christ who has been sacrificed in John's text, when they see Jesus, they call him the Lamb of God. The God who allows a lamb to substitute for death does not substitute his own son. Because his son is the perfect sacrifice. If there was a substitute of a lamb, there would be need for ongoing time after time, repeated sacrifices. But it's only when God offers his own son that that storyline ends. So as Christians, we have our own Passover story, don't we? It's the same storyline that God did it, and therefore God gets the credit. And Jesus himself memorialized this event, that, that we would remember it. And when we are here around the table, what we are remembering is that a lamb died in our place. And we live because the blood of another was shed. See, around the table, we cannot forget the lamb. It is because of the death of the lamb we have ourselves been passed over. We now live in a new land, don't we? We have, we have hope and possibility and opportunity because of the death of another. And we need to be sure that the story we tell is the story of God. And that's why every worship service we take time around the table. The table is our reminder of how did we get all this? How did we get to be where we are? And it's not our story. 
well, I did this and I did this. It's his story. God gave his one and only son so that through him we might have life. And so we're going to gather around the table. And the table serves as a reminder for those of us who are tempted to have spiritual memory loss. You ever feel like Jimmy sometimes, you not remembering as well as you could be or should be or might be? And what this table does is it reorients us. Make sure we remember, how did we get here? Jesus Christ and his sacrifice of the Lamb, the good gift of the Father. And so the table is something we receive, we participate, we affirm that apart from Christ, there is no hope in the world. So we're going to take time as a family to gather around the table and to remember what God has done and to ensure that God gets the credit in giving us a gift, the gift of his son, the Passover lamb. I'm going to invite those uh, serving around the table to uh, make their way um, forward, and we'll uh, stand and sing the song while the servers are coming forward.